My name is Dr. Matt Luckett, and welcome to the Horse Thief Historian Podcast, where we talk about all things horse stealing related and other stuff because that's sort of a limited topic. This series is part of my 17B lecture course, United States History from 1865. Uh, hello, uh, welcome back to 17B. Uh, so nice to see you all again, five minutes later. Uh, so not even that. All right, so uh, if you haven't already, please check out the first uh, uh, video where I talk about the class, I talk about the syllabus, I kind of walked everybody through the, uh, the, the, the web page and the Canvas site and, and all that other uh, cool stuff. So uh, that's the first thing. If you haven't seen that video, uh, please go ahead and watch it. Um, also, uh, I'm going to try to make all these different things avail available via podcast. Um, so I'm still working on that. Uh, I will definitely let you guys know when uh, or if I pull that off. Uh, I'm not a, a natural podcaster. My voice sounds like, uh, you know, gravel in a 90s kids movie. So it's just not. Uh, something that I would ordinarily, you know, want to do. Um, but for the benefit of learning, uh, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, expand my, uh, my repertoire. Okay, so let's talk a, a little bit about history and what history is um, and why we're here. So I'm going to go ahead and do the presentation. Oh, I need to change that. This isn't one-on-one. -on -one. <coughs> I mean, it's the same damn thing, honestly. I mean, American history, um, re regardless of what iteration of American history I'm teaching, it's more or less going to be the same sort of lecture. Because um, what I'm talking about today is, is history itself, right? Like, what is history? Um, I'm going to, uh, hold on a second. Okay. Um, I mean, his, history is more, and, and I, I know you guys are answering this question um, on, the, on the discussion board uh, for the, the introduce yourself. So, like, I don't want to get too far into, like, well, you're wrong. Um, you know, please keep telling me what you think history is. If you haven't answered that yet, you know, I, I really want to know what you think history is um, and, and what your, your sense of it is and, you know, uh, just how you visualize what, what history I, I'm really curious to know what that is um, because sometimes in academia, it's really hard to, to get a sense and get a, a opinion on what uh, you know, non-academic historians think about certain things. We're very good at talking to each other, but not always as good as talking to, um, to other people. Uh, so, okay, that's great. So I got a, a notification on the screen. Uh, so here's how I would define history. And again, don't let me influence your answer or, or, or whatever. Um, but history as a discipline is something very different than um, you know, oh, I went to the History Channel and, you know, watched a documentary about aliens building pyramids, right? It's two very different things. I mean, history is uh, praxis. It's not just art. Uh, it's, it's a discipline, right? Um, a very time-honored discipline, going all the way back to Thucydides. Um, 
if not Herodotus, <clears throat> you know, back in ancient Greece, right? This is thousands of years old. Uh, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Um, I like these three quotations, personally. I think these do a really good job of kind of explaining what history is and what it means and what it is that we're doing. Um, first one is, history is in its essentials the science of change. It knows and it teaches that it is impossible to find two events that are ever exactly alike because the conditions from which they spring are never identical. Mark Block. And basically what that means is the science of change, right? We measure how things change. And that's holistic, that's everything. That's economic change, demographic change, cultural change, social change, um, environmental change, right? Um, you know, it's, it's anything that changes um, in the span of a minute or a month or a year or a decade or a century, that's the province of the historian, right? We take that very big picture uh, view, uh, looking down at everything that's happening, you know, and trying to understand that narrative of what happened and what pushed these events along. So it's the science of change, which those of you who are scientists or studying, you know, STEM would probably take issue with that, but it's my class, so I don't care. Um, the second quote, history is an accumulative science, gradually gathering truth of the steady and plotting efforts of countless practitioners turning out countless monographs uh, by Gordon Wood, who himself turned out countless monographs and was also referenced in the uh, 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 90s movie, Goodwill Hunting. Um, if you've ever seen that, that's the historian uh, uh, Will Hunting is talking about. Um, and sort of taking out of context, if I might add. Basically what this means is that we're constantly writing. <clears throat> One of the terms I've, I've heard a lot is revisionist history. Uh, it's a term that is both entirely appropriate, but also completely inappropriate. Uh, it is entirely appropriate because we're constantly revising history, okay? And the re there's so many reasons why we do that, but really it comes down to the fact that people change, our attitudes change, our mentality changes. One of the things that Black Lives Matter has really put out there is that, you know, there's a lot of systemic racism uh, below the surface, right? There's a lot of stuff that you know, white people might not even be consciously aware of. Um, and we need to identify what those things are and, and find, you know, policy prescriptions or, you know, or even like change our own day-to-day -day behavior, right? And so Black Lives Matter isn't just a present, you know, perspective. It is also a historical perspective, right? Um, it looks back on history and it looks back on some of the things that created that structural uh, systemic racism. Um, Me Too was really a byproduct of that. Me Too is also a way of looking at the past and looking at history and saying, you know, wow, women have faced all these different challenges, you know, apart from, you know, what we would otherwise ascribe to not being able to vote because of the 19th Amendment or whatever, right? So there's this, you know, once you look at history through those, that the new sort of set of eyes, it changes a lot of what we think we know. Um, we're constantly evolving our own viewpoint. Um, we constantly also, what we, I shouldn't say we constantly, we often find new stuff, okay? New pieces of information come to light. 
uh, either through archives that had been previously uh, not as thoroughly examined. You know, people sometimes discover weird stuff, like in the Lincoln Papers, you know, uh, or in the George Washington Papers or whatever. Sometimes we find things in attics. For instance, uh, if you go to my blog, luckathistory.com, I have an entire blog uh, about grandpa's letters. And these are letters that I inherited from my grandfather. Uh, he wrote about five, 600, about 600 letters uh, during World War II. He was a Pearl Harbor survivor. And when he passed away a couple of years ago, I inherited all of them. So I'm actually using them to write a book right now. And this is a brand new source set, right? They sat in my grandpa's basement for 50 years, actually longer than that, right? In fact, a couple of years ago. So the better part of a century, they were in his basement, you know, collecting dust. And then I, and I, when I got them, I got them like in this 1970s suitcase, you know, the sort of thing where it's like very, almost definitely out of like a Peter Bogdanovich movie. If you know what I'm talking about, you get five points extra credit. Um, anyway, right. So it's just super old and dusty, but this is a brand new source, uh, brand new history. So I'm adding to what we know. I'm adding to that source base. Um, by bringing these letters out there. So if you have letters, if you have photographs, if you have anything from your grandparents or your parents or whatever, you're adding to what we know. You're adding to that reservoir of historical information and data. So historians are constantly churning through that. And as we churn through that, we have, and we find new stories to tell. We find new mysteries to solve. Um, I, I have a book coming out this fall about horse stealing. Believe it or not, there's not that many books about horse stealing, right? It's something that we all think we know a little bit about, like they're all hanged, but guess what? They weren't. Um, and so I tell an entirely, I think, new story about horse stealing, right? Who would have thought I didn't when I first started looking at this topic, you know, that this, that there wasn't a good book about horse stealing, but sure enough, there wasn't. Um, so there's always new stories to tell. Because history is nothing if not the totality of human existence. So there's a lot there that, that hasn't been, been said. So yes, history is revisionist. We're always rewriting it. We're always adding to it. Um, and, and that all comes down to one other thing, right? One other driver behind that constant revising of history, which is that history is written for us. I don't just write my book for me. I don't just write, uh, I, I don't just lecture so I can pick up a paycheck and go home, right? Like I, I feel the need to tell our nation's story and to tell it in a way that both elucidates and, and highlights past injustices, but also gives us something to hang our hats on and say, you know, like we've done some bad stuff, but we also have done some great stuff and there's a lot to be proud of. And I think we have a great, great amount of potential in our future. Um, you know, collectively as Americans. And so that telling that story uh, is important, not just to me, but to you. Um, and communicating that uh, to the public is important. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't make any kind of difference uh, unless we're all invested in it, right? So history um, is, is, it ceases to be important if it isn't important to us. Um, and in 20 years, you know, different facets of history and different ways of looking at history, uh, you know, those will be sort of at the forefront 
right? Uh, the next generation will want to tell their stories and these stories differently. So if it seems like we're constantly telling and retelling these stories, well, we are. Because every generation, every, you know, as we evolve as a society, as a species, as a civilization, we constantly reevaluate, rethink um, how and why we, we tell these stories. The uh, 1619 Project was a great example of that. Even if you disagree with it, the 1619 Project, the reason why it, it received so much flack is because it's proposing this alternate way of looking at American history. The founding of American history isn't 1776 with the, the Declaration of Independence. It's 1619 when the first slaves came ashore, right? So whether or not you agree with that, and there's a lot of, you know, very learned, very accomplished historians who don't like that project, um, and a lot of learned, accomplished historians who do, right? It, it's very much a, uh, a discussion and a, and a debate that's happening right now. But the fact that people are reconceptualizing it in that way shows us that our own uh, values are changing. So the last thing I'll say about this is for those, anybody who has a more conservative perspective on history, right? Uh, it's not necessarily that history itself is is being corrupted or or what. It's just history itself is a reflection of bigger things that are happening in our society, right? Uh, and in a lot of ways, the writing of history is a refraction of the present. So, which sounds ironic and sounds weird because we're writing about the past, but we can only filter the past through the prism of the present. So anyway, not to get too philosophical about it. This isn't the matrix, just something to think about. Uh, the last thing is kind of going back to my last point, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual, right? So that's why American history seems like such a high stakes game right now. Um, and it's why it's such a contested space right now in our national memory. Um, you know, because we legitimize a lot of stuff uh, based on our own interpretation of history, right? Americans like to think a lot of things about themselves, okay? Um, Americans like to think that we're courageous. Americans like to think that we stand up for truth and justice, uh, that we stand against tyranny, we stand against dictatorships. Um, there's a lot of truth to that, okay? Uh, and that's a lot of what the world knew about us, right? that we have these very um, high ideals of what America is. Um, you know, but that's challengeable and it's uh, something that gets a lot of, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of attacks on that from different directions, right? From our actual record, we did less than stellar uh, things and in, in, um, committed acts of villainy in our nation's past, uh, that's certainly true. There's also people that want to decouple American history, what it means to be American, from those ideals, right? The, uh, the Bill of Rights, freedom of religion, freedom to be who you want, want to be, and who want to attach it to a more um, narrowly circumscribed set of ideals, like America is white, America is Christian, America is this, America is that. Um, we're constantly debating these things and we're constantly debating what it means to be an American, right? 
history is a very big part of that because both sides like to use history and they like to employ history to sort of back up what they're saying. So what do professional historians have to add to this? Well, we can at least get the facts straight. There's a lot of historical myths out there. And the, the best that we can do is try to dismantle some of these mythologies so we can at least have a, a firmer grasp on what history actually was, and what actually happened. Um, one really quick example that we'll talk a little bit about this actually later on uh, towards the end of the class. It's this idea that uh, America is a quote unquote Christian nation. This is something I talk about a lot more in 17A, but since we're talking about Billy Graham uh, towards the end of the class, we'll, we'll be bringing this up again. Um, the idea that America is a quote unquote Christian nation is, is really, it's a fiction. Um, and this has a lot to do with some of the things we talk about in 17A. Um, American religion was very balkanized. It was heavily denominational. Baptists didn't like Methodists. Methodists hated uh, Catholics. Catholics despised uh, Unitarians and so on and so forth. All these different denominations hated one another, and they were all very um, tightly wound around the notion that they were going to heaven and everyone else was going to go to go to hell. It's like the South Park, you know, hell with the the, the ticker running up constantly, you know, and just filled with everybody. And heaven has like 3,000 people in it, right? That's American religion. Every little church thinks that they're going to heaven and everyone else is screwed, right? So when everyone's sitting in Constitution Hall creating the, the, the Constitution, they're not thinking, so we're all Christian, right? That's, that's what we're doing here. Like, no, they didn't see each other as, oh, yeah, we're all Christian. They saw each other as Methodists, as Deists, as Baptists, as Catholics, as uh, whatever. Um, you know, as um, Mennonites, right? So those differences had a ton of meaning. And when you consider the fact that they'd only recently disestablished churches um, from the different states, right? Like in New England, for instance, the state, the states actually lent financial support to congregational churches. In the South, states lent financial support uh, to Anglican churches. So these are state-supported churches. And so taxpayers are like, yeah, I don't want my money. I'm a Quaker. I don't want my money going to support the Anglican church, right? These were very big issues back then. So they didn't think of themselves as, oh, yeah, we're all Christian. Let's do this the Christian way, right? They saw themselves very differently. Now, why do I talk about that? Because today, when you, if you watch Fox News or well, you know something like that, you're going to be fed this, this idea that America is a Christian nation. And one of the things they'll say is, yeah, well, they're all Christian. The, the vast majority of them were Christian. They said, you know, nice things about Jesus and God and all this other stuff. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, uh, basically Jefferson was a deist um, and, and Franklin was a nonconformist, but you know, whatever. Uh, actually, neither of them were there for the, the writing of the Constitution. Um, anyway, I don't think Franklin was. I forget about Franklin. Uh, Jefferson was in France, uh, watching the, the beginnings of the French Revolution and getting really woo, hopped up on it. Um, anyway, that being said, uh, it's it's just a, it's an important reminder uh, that it's very easy to co-opt history uh, for certain ends. So historians, we try to be the referees, right? Uh, and we try to have a, a uh, and, and put out a more factually accurate basis uh, for, for history uh, so that hopefully our, our shared collective past 
isn't co-opted for political purposes, even though that's what a lot of people think we're doing. And a lot of historians do, and I don't like that. Um, by the very least, we try to keep it as factually based as possible. Um, that's, that's the least that we, we can try to do. Otherwise, how will we know history? Um, and in a couple minutes, I'll actually talk about how do we know history? How do we know what happened in the past actually happened in the past? We'll talk about that. Um, we'll definitely get to that because that's an important thing. Um, we're not just, and, and I know I'm recording this, but I say this in my, my in-person in classes. I'll just say to you, we're not just making this shit up, okay? Um, so we'll talk about how I know we're not just making this shit up in a few minutes. Any questions so far? Okie doke. All right. Uh, so let's talk about different approaches to history. Um, we'll just talk about it really quickly. Um, there's structuralist approaches, and basically structuralist approach uh, takes a certain factor or a certain variable and then sort of postulates that history happens because of this variable. So um, Marxism is probably one of the most famous examples of this. Marxist historians uh, believe that economics and economic privation uh, is the main driver uh, behind historical action. There's still a lot of conservatives who think that most historians are still fundamentally Marxist. Most historians are not Marxist because Marxism hasn't been popular or cool really for like 40 years. Basically, the second somebody, you know, like at Princeton or whatever, um, picked up, um, you know, Mikhail Foucault's um, discipline and punish, right? Marxism kind of went out the window. And the reason, because it's a very simplistic approach, right? Marxism is, it's like algorithmic history, okay? Um, who are the rich people? Who are the poor people? Poor people get the, the short end of the stick. That's your history, right? Um, so Marxist, and, and this originally comes from, you know, Karl Marx, who postulated that all of history, you know, was sort of this battle between the haves and the have-nots. Um, you know, and that's that's a nice theory, and that's a, a nice, you know, comforting narrative if you're a socialist or a Marxist. Um, but the, the reality is a little more difficult than that, right? Um, money doesn't always necessarily translate to power. Power doesn't always necessarily translate to money, right? Just ask Obama, who had the most powerful position in the world, you know, what that ultimately meant. These are, you know, these concepts are in flux with one another. And one of the things that, that Foucault talked about um, was the inherent um, political uh, power within society itself and how structures within society sort of reinforced um, power dynamics, right? That would, so anyway, I, I don't want to get down that road because that's like graduate level history stuff, but that just kind of goes to show you that uh, these, th this idea of, of history is a lot more difficult and it's a lot more contested than I think uh, a lot of people will kind of give it credit for. Historian, ask nine historians a question, you'll get 10 different answers. Um, I think that's sort of a good way to look at it. There's also post-structuralist uh, history, which is a little more like along the lines of what I do, uh, where there's a ton of different variables. We look at just one thing or one person or one town or one situation or one crime like horse stealing. And then we try to find out how that one thing or person or subject 
uh, informed and influenced other things. So it's sort of like the opposite of structural history. Instead of taking one thing up here and then applying it to everything down here, you're taking one thing down here and you're trying to apply it to everything else, right? So that's sort of like, that's a little more post-structuralist, um, which I think history is kind of going away from that again. Uh, the last few years, there's been a embrace of critical theory which again, this is all graduate level history stuff. You don't need to know this. You don't need to remember this or whatever. I'm just telling you because that's kind of what's happening right now. But there's been um, a, a very uh, large scale embrace within academic histor historians of critical theory, which is essentially structuralist, um, would be my argument. So a lot of uh, race critical theory, a lot of gender critical theory, um, you know, things like that. Uh, are you know really like influencing history writing right now? Um, so we're kind of we're seeing this turn, I think, back to, to structuralism in some ways, um, which I I kind of have issues with that, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so anyway, we like I said, ask nine historians a question and get to different answers. Um, we we all believe that we're the right uh, people on the right, and that everyone else is fundamentally wrong. Um, <clears throat> other ways to think about historical approaches is, uh, and, and this is, I think, a little more instructive for you and a little less like inside baseball, uh, because when you, whenever you read a history book or watch a documentary or a film or something like that, when you think in terms of scale, right, um, and the smaller the scale, the more you can say about that subject, but the less you can say about the world. And the opposite is true. The bigger that scale gets, the more you can say about the world, the less you can say uh, about any given person or any given subject with exacting detail. Does that make sense? So like for instance, think about um, like my grandpa's letters book. I'm writing about my grandpa, right? So it's a uh, World War II history of my grandfather who was in the Navy the entire time and talks about his service, talks about the men he served with, talks about his, the two ships he was on, um, you know, all these different things. So, you know, I, I talk about him and I, and I look at his letters. And so I'm able to tell a very detailed story about my grandpa. Um, and I connect it to other stuff that's happening, you know, like I make the, all these little connections with the world he lived in and the world he inhabited. Um, but what's his story going to tell me about a Luftwaffe pilot, nothing. Uh, my grandpa was in the Pacific Theater the whole time. Uh, what's it gonna say about, you know, a boy in Hiroshima, um, you know, who managed to survive the nuclear bomb there? It, it won't, right? So when you look at World War II, you know, or, or a survivor of the Holocaust or whatever, right? So, or somebody uh, storming the D-Day, uh, the, the beaches of, of D-Day, uh, beaches of Normandy during D-Day, which just happened by the way. Um, it won't, right? So I would need their stories too, you know, in order to tell that bigger picture story. Um, but now if I were to tell, like write a big World War II book and I actually have a bunch of big World War II books and they're like seven, 800 page books, all World War II, this is World War II. And there's a lot of detail in it, but you don't see a lot of individual people in those books, right? Because you're cramming so much information into these books that you just can't, get that level of detail um, that you would otherwise have, right? Here's a really good 
sort of visual uh, metaphor for this. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing for a minute and I'm going to go to uh, Google Maps. And I'm going to point it away from my house um, so you all see where I live. Um, and we'll go to the Nevada County campus, which is where I wish I was teaching this class because even though I live an hour away, it's a nice drive. Once you get past Auburn anyway, it's a nice drive. It's like 10 degrees cooler up there. I like drive through the pine trees. So, okay. Um, so I kind of missed that. All right. Let's go back to Zoom. Let's go to share screen. Uh, let's go to Google Maps. Okay. So if we look at Sierra College down here, you know, let's do satellite. This is better. So it's it's a small campus. It's beautiful. And if anybody's taking classes there, uh, it's it's a gorgeous little campus. Uh, if we zoom way, way, way in, right? Uh, we see a little pond. We see solar panels. You know, lots of little walkways. It's navigable. We see all the parking lots. That's great. So this level of detail. If we look down here, uh, the very bottom of the screen, 50 feet is like that much. So that's 50 feet. So that's a lot of detail. You can even go in further, right? And oh, look, you know, the library has a nice patio. And there's like benches and stuff. Um, look at all those nice decorative rocks around the ponds, right? So that's the level of detail that you're, you're looking at when you're reading like a biography or something like that. You're looking at one person. So the information that you get about that one person, the context that you develop with that one person is on this very micro scale. So that's like biographies, that's town histories and things like that. But when you zoom out, you start getting less detail. You zoom out to here, you see where Sierra College is, um, you don't see the ponds anymore. You don't see the benches anymore. You know, Sierra College is now just part of this bigger town. So we see Grass Valley here. We see the freeway. We see all these other little things you can go to. There's a Jack in the Box, which has the best tacos. Um, I'm just joking. Uh, although at 11 p.m. at night, they're the best tacos. Um, but not before that. So we get kind of a sense of, of the area and we see that it's very tree covered, which is one of the reasons why I like it. I like trees. That's why I left LA, not enough trees. Um, so this is like more of a, a regional history, state history, city history. Um, we get a lot of detail, but we're also able to make bigger connections. Um, but without sort of like the exacting detail, you would get like the campus. Now if we zoom out, California, we barely even see Grass Valley anymore. Like we don't know anything about the campus. Like we lose sight of the individual. Uh, we lose track of that individual's family or community or whatever. But we see Grass Valley situated relative to Sacramento, the mountains over here, the mountains over there, like Tahoe, the ocean. So we get a better sense of California and we're able to kind of place Grass Valley now within this, this wider area. If we look down here now, that distance, I. Talk to you earlier, that was 50 feet. Now it's 20 miles. Because there's all this information, all these little other detailed places that you look at. But when you zoom out, there's only so much you can talk about. And there's only so much detail that's evident. And then when we look at the world, wow, you know, like you can't even really tell anything. I mean, it's just 
it's just the world. Um, so anyway, I, I, I like to do that because I just think it's instructive for, for history, right? The bigger the topic, uh, the, the likelier it is that you're not going to get a whole lot of detail. And that's important to remember. Sometimes detail uh, is necessary for context. So anyway, I, I, I'm being a little bit like philosophical with this, but you know, just <clears throat> think about that. When you're reading a book, um, like Anne Moody, for instance, is a great example. Is Anne Moody is an autobiography. Um, I think it's a fantastic autobiography because it tells us not just about her experience, but through her, uh, we get a better sense of the civil rights movement. But she doesn't have the whole story, right? She doesn't tell us what uh, happened with Martin Luther King. She doesn't tell us what happened with the Montgomery bus boycott. Excuse me, she's not uh, watching the oral arguments at Brown versus the Board of Education. Uh, so all those different things, you know, she's not necessarily privy to those things happening. So that doesn't at all negate the value of her book. It's a very valuable book. It just shows you what won't be in that book. Uh, so those are kind of good things to think about when we think about books and we think about documentaries and stuff like that. Any questions so far? Okay. I talked a little bit about that. So let's talk a little bit about what historians actually do. Um, and so I, I kind of like the law and order metaphor. Uh, so, you know, in law and order, um, you start with a dead body or with someone like you're watching the first two minutes of law and order, you know, someone's about to get capped and it's nerve wracking, right? Like you're kind of wondering like, who's going to get killed just now. You know, um, you're just, it's like, same thing applies for a Columbo episode. You know, you're watching it and you're like, one of you is going to be dead by the first commercial break. And I don't know who, but one of you is going to die. Um, after that is when, you know, the fun starts. Not, the, not fun, I mean, of killing somebody, but the fun of figuring out who did it, right? It's not a law and order episode. You know, you have the detectives uh, who try to solve the crime. Then you have the prosecutors who try to bring uh, the perpetrators to justice. And then you have the trial system uh, where justice is actually served, right? So uh, researching writing history is a lot like that. You know, it's, you have a, a mystery. I like to call it a history mystery. Uh, a question you're trying to solve. And, you know, the first thing that historians need to do is gather information and solve that mystery. So when you watch a Law and Order episode, uh, the detectives, they go around, they interview people, they check phone records, they check ballistics, uh, they go to the crime scene, all that other stuff, right? They're collecting that information. And then they use that information to the best degree that they can to solve that crime. Um, and this is, I mean, this is a format for a lot of different things, right? Like one really great, I don't know if you guys have seen this, um, Filthy Rich. I watched this last night. It's four hours long. It's um, all about Jeffrey Epstein. And it is uh, an incredible miniseries if you haven't seen it. It's, it's on Netflix. It's great. Um, and it kind of goes through a similar process. You have the detectives at West Palm Beach, sorry, Palm Beach who are trying to solve um, this crime and trying to uh, investigate this this case um, involving Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and then going out further, right, uh, you then have the prosecutors who uh, initially sort of um, punt the, the investigation and then later on uh, they come back to it in the last couple of years. Uh, and then finally, you know, the, the process of justice itself in the courtroom. 
Um, so historians specifically, we go to primary sources. Uh, we go to archives, we go to newspapers. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. We try to gather that information to solve our history mystery. We read a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, we think about it, we write about it. And eventually, we feel like we're able to now tell the story that we want to tell. We feel like we have enough information, we have enough context. Um, we feel very confident in the fact that we're right. Once we feel confident that we're right, and we have that narrative, we have that story, then we go down to that next step in the process, the historian as an attorney. That's when we argue for our own interpretation, right? Uh, so that's when we write our book. That's when we write our article. That's when we give our lecture. That's when we uh, give our conference paper. That's when we make our documentary, right? When we think we have our answer, that's when we put it together and we set it out to the world. It took me years, years and years and years of researching horse stealing for me to feel like, you know, I think I, I can put something together now and I think I can make a, an argument and then I, you know, and then write a book and then try to publish it, right? So that's what historians try to do. We try to get our ideas out there. We try to get that story out there. And just like an, an attorney would do, you try to make the best possible case, right? You get all the evidence that you can, you put it all together, you do the best job you can of making that case, right? You can have all the evidence in the world, but it doesn't mean anything if you can't tell a compelling story and make a compelling argument with that information. So we put that out there. Um, but we can't just operate on our own, right? We need to the benefit from other historians. We need other people to sort of help us along, people to tell us when we're really wrong about something, people to stop us from making huge mistakes. Um, and that's when, that's another uh, job that historians have is historian is judge. A judge isn't there to pass judgment. That's like, except like in the sentencing phase, right? Like that's, there's only one, you know, part of that, that justice process where a judge is like, okay, well, I am judging you and bah, like the Simpsons monkey, you are doing this now, you know, you're going to prison. Um, but for the most part, a judge is a referee taking these two different sides, the defense and the prosecution, right? And trying to keep the proceedings fair, trying to keep um, both within ethical limits. Um, and historians are, are sort of similarly judges, right? So we judge each other's work. Um, and this is sort of done behind the scenes, but it's also done in public. So behind the scenes, when I try to publish my book, um, I had to go through a peer review process. So my book was peer reviewed twice. Uh, so a total of four different historians uh, reviewed my, my book before it was published. And the first review process, they basically said, we like it, but it's full of stuff that you need to fix. And there's a lot of issues with it uh, and a lot of mistakes and just rework it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's something I should do. Um, so I took a few years and I did that and I took my time had a kid, moved to Sacramento, stuff happens, but then I finally finished the book. I sent it to a new publisher, and the new publisher sends it to two new peer reviewers. These are historians, these are people who've written on this subject, they know what they're talking about, they're established experts. They then read my book, they come back, they say, okay, we really like this, you're almost there, you just need to change these 20 things and these 20 things over here. Great, 
I spent a summer doing that. I sent it back in, boom, right? That's the process. Um, and if my publisher ever comes to me and says, hey, there's this great book on horse stealing that's coming out after years, we want you to review it. I'll do that, right? I'm happy to do that because that's one of our jobs is to lend our expertise to other historians and to make sure that they don't do anything super weird or super bad with their books. We try to police each other, right? So we can all produce the best possible content um, and the best possible, um, sorry, I'm thinking like a blogger for a second. So we can produce the best possible research and put that out there. Um, after the fact, we're also judges. We write book reviews, uh, which then go into journals and things like that. Uh, so we'll then review books that have already come out and we'll comment on them. And like, I've done a bunch of book reviews. Uh, most of the books I've, I've reviewed, usually a, a publisher, like a journal will come to you and will say, hey, we want you to review this book. And what do you get out of it? You get a free copy of the book. So if it's a good looking book, books are like 40 bucks, right? So I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah, send me that book. So I've done like four or five book reviews. And I think like four of them were really good and they were great books and I now own them and I'm happy with them. One was absolute crap. It was just a terrible book. Um, I was reading that damn thing and I could barely get through it. And I was actually traveling in China at the time. And as soon as I was done with that book, I, I like sat in this cafe in Beijing writing my book review. As soon as I was done, they had like this little lender library there. I just lent it, like I just put it there. I'm like, I don't want this book anymore. So this copy of this guy's terrible book is floating around somewhere in Beijing, I think. Um, somewhere in China, there's a copy of this guy's book. So anyway, um, it was just, it was really bad. Um, but you know, it wasn't a good book, right? And so, in the, and I don't mean like it was boring. I didn't like it, it wasn't compelling. You know, it was like watching Gili or something. I mean, like, it just wasn't very well researched. Um, it wasn't well edited. Uh, the research was shoddy. Uh, they didn't do a very good job with it. Uh, and so I wrote that in my review, right? So historians judge each other's work all the time. Um, but ultimately, what we decide isn't as important as what you decide. So that's sort of the last component here, right? The people as a jury. The people, Americans, like people of the world, you're, you and your family, right? Um, viewers of the History Channel, right? Um, people who shop at, for books at Barnes and Noble, right? These are all these different historical constituencies. And they're the people who ultimately decide what history is good and what history isn't, right? Most academics don't write for popular audiences, which I think is an incredible disservice. Uh, and that's something I've, you know, uh, I go on the soapbox about a lot, um, you know, because I think we should be writing for a more general audience. But, and one of the reasons why I think that is because so many of our popular history books now are written by non-professional historians. The 1619 Project that I talked about earlier, historians didn't write that. Um, a bunch of writers, a couple of art critics, uh, journalists, they wrote this. They used history. There's a bunch of references to historical. Um, there, there's actually a couple of historians in there, like Kevin Gannon's in there. Um, he's a, a big time historian. He has like a million Twitter followers. Um, but for the most part, it's mostly non-professional academic historians. So does that mean it's bad scholarship? No, 
you know, does that mean it's bad history? No. But it does mean that someone else is telling the story. And that's one more reason to not care about what academic historians are doing, right? If we're able to get our history from the New York Times or from, God forbid, you know, Bill O'Reilly, um, then that's a totally different thing, right? Uh, and we're sort of abrogating and we're forfeiting what we should be doing and what our role should be uh, in, in communicating our research and communicating our knowledge to the public. But the public, you know, it's, it's a marketplace of ideas and the public is ultimately going to go and seize on those things that make sense to them. So when you read one of Bill O'Reilly's Killing Lincoln or whatever books, I'm either crap, but you know, he's doing a good job of telling this compelling story that latches onto people, that seizes people's imagination. I think to some degree that's what history should try to do, right? Because ultimately it comes down to you guys. And we're starting to see the, the effects of this. Um, you know, humanities and history departments all across the country are being defunded. Why? Because people don't think history is, is a serious discipline. They don't take it seriously. They don't um, think too much, think too highly about what it is that we produce. They get all their history from writers, from journalists, from pundits on TV. And when that's happening, you know, we're losing what should be our audience. That's not on you guys, right? You don't blame it. Well, I guess you can blame a jury uh, for coming to the wrong conclusion. Um, you know, which has certainly happened in, in the past. Um, you know, but you do need to convince the people and you do need to convince the public that the stories that you're telling are important. And I don't think we're doing a good enough job of that. So hopefully it is really important to me that this class, at least in some way, um, doesn't just make you interested in, in, in my class or my work or whatever. I hope it, at the very least, um, makes you understand and makes you aware of the work that historians do um, and hopefully be interested enough in history at the end of this that you'll maybe find a Gordon Wood book and crack it open someday. He wrote a lot of good stuff. Um, or Sean Wilentz or something like that. Or my advisor, Stephen Aaron, he's wrote, written some great books. Um, so hopefully we can move in that direction because um, it's certainly in my professional interest and academic interest, but uh, you know, to make academic historians more heard. Um, but we need to do that work and we need to sell you on that and convince you on that. So anyway, that's why I, I say, there's actually a quiz question about this. Who's the ultimately, who's the ultimate arbiter um, of our, of our history? Who ultimately determines what history is and is not important? It's not historians. It's you. You know, if uh, if any if everyone out there thinks the same way I think about Bill O'Reilly's books, he wouldn't write them anymore because they won't make any money and publishers won't want to publish them. Uh, one book that came out recently, The Pioneers by David McAuliffe. This is a less politically charged example. Um, it's a terrible book. It is an awful, awful book. I'm a Western historian. Uh, the Pioneers is just, it's dog shit. It's terrible, okay? It is bad, but it's a bestseller, right? So does that tell me that people are stupid? Well, no, right? It's because he's front and center 
hawk in these books, Barnes and Noble has a huge display of them. So we need to do a better job. And by we, I mean us, like historians, right? We need to do a better job of reaching not just students in college history classes, but people who wander to a Barnes and Noble and buy a book. So anyway, I'll get off my pedestal, my soapbox now, but I just think that's kind of an important thing to, to, to mention. Um, okay. Last but not least, how do we know it's real? I hinted at this earlier. How do we know what history is real and what history isn't, right? And this is sort of at the heart of what I'm talking about because it is so easy, especially in this, this day and age, for a non-historian to go on TV and to make some grand pronouncement about history and have absolutely no factual basis for it, okay? Um, so what is history based on? What do academic historians base their work on? It's all source-based, okay? Uh, there's actually three kinds of sources. I need to update this. There's primary, secondary, and tertiary. Uh, tertiary, real quick, is encyclopedias. It's Wikipedia. Um, it's college textbooks. It's like a, a six-paragraph summary of the Civil War, that sort of thing, right? That's a tertiary source. Um, a secondary source is basically um, by a historian. Uh, it's a monograph. It's an argument. It's something that furthers our knowledge of, of history, right? It's a historian taking primary sources uh, and then telling a new story, telling a new argument. That can be a monograph. That can be a Gordon Wood book. That can be uh, my book coming out. That can be uh, any number of things uh, written by a modern historian um, trying to tell a new story. And, the, and And the one thing I would say about secondary sources is that they're authoritative now. So a primary, a secondary source is only secondary now. You can't make guarantees about a secondary source later because some better source might come out and render null and void that source you're using currently, right? So as historians write new sources, as we make new interpretations of the past, some of the sources we might be using now become less and less relevant and more and more obsolete. So when that happens, they become the other kind of source, which is a primary source. A primary source is everything else. A primary source is how we get direct information about the past. Or rather, the way I like to talk about it uh, is a primary source gives us firsthand information, and a, and a primary source gives us the information we need to solve a history mystery. And that makes any sense. Um, one of the, the common definitions I've seen in the past is that a primary source is a first-hand account. I think that's a little bit limiting. Um, newspaper articles aren't always first-hand accounts. Um, government publications aren't usually first-hand accounts. Um, but we can still get a lot of valuable information from them. Um, art, right? Art can be a primary source. That's not necessarily an account. Um, music is a primary source. Movies are a primary source. Furniture is a primary source. Um, books in a library are, can be primary sources uh, if they're you know old enough um, and they help us tell this story. So uh, the other day, uh, I, like if you if you do archaeology, 
things that you find in archaeological dig can be primary sources because we use them in the context of solving this history mystery, right? Um, there's some really more popular than, than, not, you know, than others examples like journals, um, letters, correspondence, things like that are fantastic examples of primary sources. Uh, for my horse stealing book, my primary sources I used, and I don't keep mentioning my work because like I'm obsessed with it and I'm a narcissist. I'm talking about it because it's the first thing I think about um, and it's easy for me to answer questions about it. So if you're sick of hearing me talk about horse stealing, let me know and I'll stop. Um, for my horse stealing book, I wanted to know about horse stealing in the late 19th century in Western Nebraska. So how do I find out about horse stealing, right? Um, well, all the people who stole horses are dead, so I can't talk to them, you know, unless I make a ghost out of myself and haunt their, their graves or go to heaven and, or hell or whatever, you know, and, and track their spirits down. I can't do that, right? That's be very difficult. Um, so I do the next best thing, right? I go to, I find legal records. Um, I go to Nebraska and I found, uh, you know, legal records uh, about horse thieves being prosecuted for breaking the law. I found affidavits uh, by horse thieves, by horse thief victims. Um, I found military records in Washington, D.C. talking about, um, you know, army scouts going after horse thieves. Um, you know, uh, books, autobiographies where people talk about horse stealing. Anything and everything I can find that would help me find information about horse stealing, I found. And then I used all that information to tell this new story, which then becomes a secondary source. Right? It's the same thing with my grandpa's letters. Each of those letters is a primary source. Each of those letters on their own doesn't tell that much of a story. It's like a snapshot in his life. Hi, mom and dad. You know, I'm in the middle of the Pacific. Um, we went fishing yesterday. You know, I had burgers for, for dinner. That's great, you know, but you can't write a book about that. Now, 600 of those letters, and you have something. So I take these 600 letters, I read them all, I take notes on them, I've been blogging about them, and then that is the basis of this new book. So I'm telling a new story, my secondary source, based on all these little primary sources. So that's kind of how that happens. So primary source um, is, is that factual information. It's that evidence. It's basically just evidence. And going back to that original question of how do we know it's true? Well, there's not usually a lot of dispute. Well, there, there's some, I mean, there are cases where we dispute the authenticity of a source. And that happens a lot, right? Um, but for the most part, sources are kind of taken or leave them. You go to an archive, and uh, archives are pretty good stewards of primary sources because anything that's that's uh, of dubious authenticity, they either won't put it out or they'll tell you that we're not really sure if this is the real thing or not. But 99.999% of the time, it's just stuff from the past. It's detritus from the past. It's stuff from people's attics. It's stuff from old government archives, right? It's the stuff that's been left over that survived the test of time. And we now have that. Like, um, I don't have a certificate of authenticity for my grand for grandpa's letters. I, you know, I don't. Um, I suppose you could do some carbon analysis to it and, and find that out. But for the most part, 99.999% of the time, these sources are authentic because 
the other thing about primary sources is that there's a lot of them. There's a mountain of primary sources. Um, this is stuff that's just survived. And then we put it in places like archives so that we can later on refer to it. The National Archives is a great example of this. Uh, if you ever go to the National Archives, they have um, huge reams of volumes from every American for every American regiment, every American, you know, most American generals. Um, as I do uh, naval research right now, um, most of the ships from World War II, they have like three different kinds of documentation. They have deck logs. They have all this other stuff. They're all in the National Archives. So you can go there. And if you read a book where somebody like me, you know, is talking about uh, my grandpa's ship, the USS Chu, and you're questioning my, my data or my information, I'm not going to like challenge you to a fight or something and say, oh, uh, fist of guffs. I'll send you to Washington, D.C., man, and you can get that resource yourself and you can look at it. That's the nice thing about primary sources is that once they exist, I mean, hopefully they're not destroyed by a fire or something, which also happens. But if you want to see a primary source for yourself, you can go find it. Just go to that archive and ask to see it. And sometimes you'll put on gloves or whatever, but they'll bring it out to you and you'll be able to take a look at it. That's one of the reasons why when you read an academic history book, it's full of footnotes and endnotes, right? Um, and it has a huge bibliography. The reason why we do that is because we want our readers to be able to know that we're telling the truth and we're basically letting them call our bluff. Uh, if you think I'm making up all this horse thief stuff, well, go to Nebraska, go to the Hyannis courthouse, right? And walk in and ask to see their county records. And then you'll see the exact same material I was using when I wrote my book. So that's why we, we try to do this because, you know, that, that idea that, we're not just making shit up because A, this stuff is out there and you can look at it, and B, we, we hold ourselves to account by having extensive footnotes and extensive bibliographies so that you can double check our work. Other historians can do that. Readers can do that. Um, there's one really great example. I'm, I know I'm kind of like ranting and raving here, so I'll try to not do too much of that. Uh, one really good example is Michael Belisiles who about 20, 25 years ago, something like that, uh, wrote a book based on his dissertation uh, about uh, guns in colonial America. Now, basically what he did was he went to probate records uh, during the, the Revolutionary War era. And probate records are really cool primary sources. And you wouldn't think it because it doesn't tell like a compelling story, but probate records contain lists of everything that people owned. And then, you know, probate courts, basically, where people then show up and fight over some dead person's possessions, right? You know, oh, I want, you know, that dead guy's horse. So I'm going to go to, you know, probate court and fight for it. So probate courts have lists of things that people own. So he went through all these probate records, and what he found was surprising. There's not a lot of guns in those probate records. So he took those probate records, put them all together, and then wrote this book saying, Colonial Americans didn't own that many guns. Now, here's where things get weird, right? Uh, the NRA finds out about this. And the NRA basically funds its own operation uh, to go into this guy's book and to look at all those footnotes and to reconstruct all that data. Because this is a pretty powerful argument, you know, when you 
I mean, think about the implications here, right? If not that many Revolutionary War soldiers own guns, then the implication is that, you know, the right to bear arms really is about militias. And so much of that Second Amendment stuff today is, is you know, outmoded and, and ahistorical. So they go into it. And they, they start, like, really going through all of his, his work. What they find is that there are some irregularities in his data. Uh, these were sort of accidental, but they are also pretty, like, he should have caught them. Uh, and, and he should have known better. So anyway, what happens is the NRA comes out and they say, well, look, he falsified this data. Now, I don't think he falsified it. I think he took some liberties. And I think part of that's because most historians are bad at math. So I think he bad mathed his way to some terrible graphs. Um, but what ultimately happens is we have to hold ourselves to a very high standard. So he loses his job because of this. And he's now like adjuncting somewhere in Connecticut, I think. Um, so that has some real ramifications, right? So like, you know, you can say what you want about the NRA as an organization, and I, I think they're a bunch of villains, but what they did was perfectly legitimate. They went to this guy's book, and they found these things that were wrong. And, you know, good on them for them telling everybody about that, because otherwise, we would be using this source, and we would be referencing it, and it would be wrong, because the information would be wrong, right? So we need to, that's one of the reasons why we have peer reviews, and we have safeguards, and really good editors and things like that, because we don't want that happening. And it's one of the reasons why we put everything in a bibliography and in endnotes, so that people down the line, you know, can have confidence in what we're saying is true. And when something isn't true, at the very least, they can sort of uh, uh, deconstruct it and figure out why uh, what we're saying isn't correct. So if you don't like a history book, if you don't like what a history book says, um, do what the NRA did you know, and just go through it. Um, or, you know, if it's not guns, get the NRA, they'll probably do it for you, you know, and, and send researchers all across the country and, and uh, reverse engineer the book. But that's why we do that, because we want confidence that what we're telling is accurate. We want confidence that the secondary sources we use from other historians are accurate. And we want you, the public, to be confident that the stories that we tell are accurate. So that's why we do all that. Um, otherwise, it's a house of cards. So any questions about primary sources? Primary sources are built into secondary sources, and then secondary sources are then uh, sort of the authoritative accounts that historians then, then tell. Questions, comments, anything? Okay. Um, one last thing I'll say about secondary sources is that uh, secondary sources, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but secondary sources have an, an expiration date. And when secondary sources cease to be authoritative, they then become primary sources. Uh, not in the sense that they then automatically like, poof, now it's a journal, you know, or now it's a letter from 1750, right? Like there's no magical alchemy that makes them suddenly 300 years older. Um, it's that the way we look at them changes. When a secondary source is no longer authoritative, when we no longer take it for granted and what it has to say for granted, then instead of it being used to help us tell the story now and to give us what the, the most current perspectives are on this history mystery we're trying to solve, instead, 
it tells us more about what people used to think, what people used to think about this subject. That is also important. You know, it's, it's good to be able to look at past historians and past works and know what historians believed and what historians argued. One of the most famous um, secondary sources that are now primary sources uh, is The Significance of the Frontier in American History by Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893. And this was very much written in the milieu of the early 1890s. The frontier had recently closed. Uh, Frederick Jackson Turner was this Wisconsin historian um, who uh, studied under Bancroft, didn't he? I lost that paying attention. Um, she would know that. Uh, but anyway, right, his whole idea was that uh, Western settlement uh, was this very proactive process. It was this very neat process. Basically, a bunch of lumberjacks and explorers go west, you know, kill all the bears and all the Indians and things like that. And then you have this nice, peaceful wave of settlers from Europe. And it's that process of settling the West that brings these Europeans together. They no longer uh, speak Swedish and Norwegian and German and things like that. Uh, they no longer sort of cloister off their own little communities. Instead, as they settle the West, they have to come together. They have to build roads. They have to build schools. They have to build governments. They have to elect sheriffs and mayors and you know county governments and things like that. And as they're coming together and building these communities, uh, you see this process of Americanization. So as people settle the frontier from all these different walks of life and all these different parts of the country, they become more American. Now, there's a lot of problems with that thesis. And there's 130 years of writing basically saying how crappy it is. Um, but the fact that people have been talking about it for over 100 years means that it's very important. Um, because it does tell us a lot about what people back at that time thought um, about the frontier's place in American history. So in that regard, it is a very illuminating work. Even though we don't take it at face value, um, it is still very important because we get a story out of that book that tells us what people back in 1890 thought about the frontier. And you see this sadness um, in 1890 and the 1890s about the disappearance of the frontier because America's had a frontier its whole history ever since, you know, 1607 when Jamestown was founded. Um, you know, we've always had this frontier. And then almost 300 years into this, this, you know, history here, suddenly we don't have it anymore. And people freaked out, just like people are freaking out now, you know, about COVID, about um, the controversy over George Floyd's death, right? People are freaking out now. So how do they reconcile that freaking out? Um, well, in 1890, that's what Frederick Jackson Turner did. And that's how he reconciled the end of this frontier. He tried to tell a new story about it. So hopefully I haven't rambled too much. Um, hopefully you, you have a, a little bit of a better idea of what historians do what sources there are, what primary sources are, secondary sources are, how they build off of each other, and you know just the sorts of things that historians generally do. I, I hope this all made sense. Because um, like I was saying, kind of the, the, when I was talking about the, the website, um, the, the website's very nonlinear, right? The, the Canvas website. So historians are very linear people. You know, We like linear stories. We like beginning, middle, and end. 
um, you know, we're not, uh, uh, we're, we're not STEM like that, you know, we're thinking in abstract. We like stories. We're just story people. Stories are fun. Um, so telling a story about the ins and outs of a very complicated uh, profession, uh, so it's a little hard to do when you're, you're sort of used to talking about stories, which is essentially what we'll start doing uh, tomorrow and for the rest of the class is telling stories. Um, factual stories, right? Uh, but stories nonetheless. So hopefully this all made sense. And if you guys have any questions, any questions or... Well, in that regard, um, I think that is it for today. Uh, so if you do have questions, uh, please send me an email or write a discussion board post. I think one thing you need to do in this class, uh, by which I mean like both sections, is have like a general discussion board, uh, which I don't have anything like that yet, but I should. Uh, so I might do that this week, uh, find some way to kind of build that in. Um, in the meantime, thank you very much. I will post uh, this lecture, as well as the previous one, uh, online and uh, try to figure out a way to caption it. And uh, again, thank you very much for uh, sitting in and giving me an audience and making me feel like I'm not just screaming at a computer screen. Uh, so I appreciate that. Um, I will maybe see some of you tomorrow. And uh, let me know if you have any questions about the class and everything else going forward. So I'm going to stop recording now. Oh, I set the video. Well, it's not the same thing. Stop share. Okay, that's what I have to do. And stop recording.